This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Redline, the unraveling of Syria and America's race to destroy the most dangerous arsenal in the world. The author is Joby Warwick of The Washington Post. He discusses America's efforts to destroy chemical weapons in Syria during the Civil War. He's interviewed by Georgetown University professor and author Angela Stent. Welcome, everyone, to what will be a fascinating and probably a disturbing conversation. Joby Warwick is the Washington Post national security correspondent. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, one for journalism and one for general nonfiction in the book category. He covers the Middle East. He covers terrorism, intelligence, and other national security issues. And his book, Redline, tells a powerful, gripping story about how the United States worked to destroy President Bashar al-Assad of Syria, to destroy his arsenal of chemical weapons. Um, And it really does read like a thriller in many places. It's a a very compelling book, and I'm sure you will really um, get a lot um, out of reading it. Um, I published a book a couple of years ago where I accepted the conventional wisdom that Russia and the United States had worked together to disarm Syria of its chemical weapons. But of course, if you read uh, Joby Warwick's book, you'll see that while that is technically true, in fact, the Russians did a lot to obstruct it. And that in itself is is another whole story. Um, So I'm going to begin with the first question uh, to Joby Warwick. Can you tell us why you decided to write the book? Well, first of all, Angela, thank you so much for doing this. I am honored to be with uh, one of the premier Russia experts in this country. And anyone who hasn't seen Putin's World, uh, Professor Stent's last book, it's 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 terrific. And I could not uh, possibly recommend it highly enough. Uh, so thank you again so much for doing this. And so wh- why I did this book, I, you know, there are several reasons, but but really, you know, as a storyteller, you know, I, you, story is, is the currency of our trade. And, and this is an amazing story, as tragic as it is, but the chemical weapons saga and all that happened and all the, you know, the, the, the drama of trying to get this stuff out and then having, you know, Syria policy just collapse around it, you know, just, just an amazing story. So that was part of it. And the more I got into this subject, the more complicated and fascinating the storylines became, heading off in so many directions, from inspectors on the ground to activists, you know, trying to prod the United States into doing something, to just the, the pure cruelty and barbarity of, of some of the combatants, to ISIS coming to, into the picture, uh, engineers and scientists trying to figure out what to do with these weapons. So there are all these wonderful, fascinating story threads. So that was a big part of it. And the other part is, as an, as an author, this is my third book, and each one I tried to let uh, a narrative tell a bigger story. My last book was called Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS, and it, it ended up sort of focusing on mostly one individual, this man, Ayman al-Sakari, who was the godfather of ISIS, who's back in Iraq in the, in the early 2000s, you know, creating a new terrorist movement that was like al-Qaeda, but more vicious. And in telling his story, his biography, it allows readers to understand where this group came from and why they're so different, why they're so vicious. In a sense, I try to do the same here. There's so many confusing, complicated things about the Syrian conflict. You know, why was the, the, the red line threat issued and why didn't we enforce it with military strike? Why is this conflict still so horrific and so tragic 10 years later? Why hasn't Assad been brought to justice? And so I tried to explain uh, some of those complexities in the book and I do it through human stories to try to make it more powerful, more real, more relatable to ordinary people. Yeah, and those human stories really are compelling, um, very moving, some of them. So I guess the next question then is, what were your sources? How did you go about collecting the material for this book? Because obviously, it's a very complicated and actually dangerous subject. Mm. Well, one of the great privileges of my job, and I know yours too, is that we have this license to ask questions including to officials, to government officials. We can go up and say, I work for the Washington Post. I'm an author. I you know, would like some answers to some questions and you can get responses. And that allows us to travel to different places to, to find people who may have the answers that we're seeking. And so that was you know, how I began this search in a way. There's always a starting point. And for me, in this case, it was the question of, of how do you deal with this phenomenally complicated challenge 
of removing hundreds of tons of chemical weapons from a country in the middle of the war. How do you do that? Who does it? And, and then how do you make sure that you have it all? And so because of you know my, my job history, I've, I've done a lot of work on weapons of mass destruction in my you know realm of sources are a lot of people who know about this field and were personally involved in this. And so they became some of my first interviews is speaking to people who are on the ground trying to figure out how to get the weapons out and dealing with the frustrations and complications. And that leads to a million other sources along the way, everyone from, from White House officials at the time to to Russians, to to Syrians, to activists, to housewives, you know, people who were tortured in prison. And all of this becomes kind of part of this tapestry that I try to weave. And, you know, each little story connects in its own way to another. So um, your book starts out with a very compelling portrait. How did the United States first find out about the Syrian chemical weapons program? So we had an inkling um, that they were doing something way back in the 70s. And this was a time when a number of Arab countries were experimenting with, with weapon systems of various kinds. The Iraqis certainly were plunging into all kinds of, of WMD capabilities. The Egyptians were looking at uh, chemical weapons and they'd used them in, in Yemen. Uh, the Syrians were starting to, to, to nibble at the edges as well, getting you know uh, some precursor stocks from, from other countries. So we knew the interest was there. But what became fascinating to me was, was how this, this, this program was different from the others. For Syria, this was a chemical, uh, not just a chemical weapons program, but it was a strategic arsenal. It was their deterrent against Israel, their next door neighbor, their arch enemy, which was nuclear armed. And so Syria puts a lot of effort and expertise into building a very robust chemical weapons program, not just mustard gas and the, and the, the old stuff, but the most sophisticated uh, weapons they could build, such as sarin and VX. And we knew, the Israelis knew that they were working on things like this, but we had an asset. We had an amazing spy who happened to be working in the best possible place for us, which was inside the chemical weapons complex. He was a scientist. He happened to have studied the United States. He loved America. And he was open to the idea of helping us out. So we recruited this guy. His name is Eamon. I know his full name. We're, we're trying to protect his, his identity because his family is scattered. But he agreed to help us by giving us secrets from inside the program. What were the Syrians making? How much did they have? Where did they have it? And even at one point passed uh, a sample to us, a small sample in a vial of sarin, which he handed to the CIA so they could take it back home and test it themselves. And so Eamon ends up getting in some trouble. He uh, I won't give away the ending, but he's betrayed. Uh, he ends up uh, you know, being discovered and then in, and meets a brutal end, shall we say. But because of that spy, and because of the work that he did over, over all those years, when things do start to go bad in Syria, when the, when the country starts to fall apart, we know as the United States very well what's at stake and where these weapons are that could potentially be plundered by any number of, of bad guys and, and maybe carried outside the country for terrorist attacks. Yeah, so he's a, a very compelling character. You write about him uh, uh, in the book. But there are a number of other very interesting and compelling characters in your book, some from the region, some from different parts of Europe, some from the United States. Would you like to give the viewers some sense of some of the other kind of larger than life characters that appear in this book? There's so many great ones, and, and a few of them I, I, I could probably write a whole book about them because they're just so interesting. And it, it's everything from this uh, Dutch woman who was the leader of the inspection force on the ground who helped take the weapons out. Uh, a woman who had been a diplomat at the UN who had no real military or, or certainly no, no chemical weapons experience, but had to go head to head with the Russians and the Syrians and essentially force them to, to hold to their promises to get the weapons out. And she is you know, you know, her her, her uh, hotel comes under artillery attack or mortar fire. A mortar round goes through several floors of her hotel and lands in a bedroom above her. Uh, she becomes sort of the target of a plot inside the country. People are following her around. So her, her life becomes very, very interesting. But she sticks to it and she makes this promise that we're going to do this job. We're going to get out the weapons that you've declared and then we're going to go home. Uh, but her story is really compelling. There are others like this. One other I'll mention, just because he's a personal favorite of mine, is a Syrian uh, individual. He's just this young uh, medical intern. He's finished his degree, but he doesn't have his license yet. So he's just, you know, at the time the war breaks out, 
just wanting to become a doctor and live a, a normal life as a physician. The war drags him into, into the conflict in a way that he never anticipates. Uh, he's working at the hospital when the regime forces bring in some of the opposition figures that they've arrested and, and then they take them out of the hospital and take them to prisons. They take a few of his friends who are arrested one night because they had medical supplies in their car and they torture and kill them and set their bodies on fire and then dump them in front of the hospital with their ID tags on top of them. And moments like this, uh, take this young man whose name is Hussam Al-Nayas and, and essentially force him to, to take a side and he becomes a secret activist. He begins to try to help out the cause of the rebels. And he does this at great risk to himself. At one point, he is arrested and taken to prison and beaten. He gets out because his father kind of pays someone to, to, to bribe him out of jail. And there's this wrenching scene where he goes back home and he's troubled about what to do. And, and one day he's deciding to just, I have to go back to the front. I have to help my friends. And his mother grabs a knife and gives it to him and says, take this knife and kill me because I'd rather be killed by you than to have the horror of someday knowing that somebody's going to knock on my door and tell me that my son is dead. So that's this background of this, this young man who then goes on to commit himself to becoming a kind of uh, one-man clearinghouse for informational chemical weapons. People call him Chemical Hazm. That's his nickname because he is obsessed with the idea that if a chemical attack happens, people have to know what to do. And he also begins to try to collect evidence and bring it to the outside world, sometimes crossing into enemy territory, going to the, to the front lines to gather those precious bits of evidence, pieces of artillery shells, uh, soil samples, and then sneak them across the border into Turkey to give them to the CIA and others who would then be able to respond to them. And he's one of the many fascinating people you meet as you, as you go through this journey. He is indeed, and he's a very sympathetic character as you describe him. Um, let's move on now maybe to the kind of core story in the book. Um, if you could describe for us the 2013 um, sarin attack in Syria and how the U.S. and its partners were able to identify the exact nature of the chemical weapon. Well, there's the big attack that, that we all remember. It happened in, in August of 2013. But before that, there was kind of an interesting run-up. Uh, there were little pinpricks attacks around the country, just an artillery shell here, a bomb there, a tear gas canister filled with sarin dropped on one town in northern uh, Syria, as if to, to kind of test uh, the Obama administration's red line, but also really to test a theory, which is whether they could use this strategic weapon as a tactical tool, if they could um, use it to to break the resistance, to to demoralize them, to uh, you know to drive out uh, you know, the besieged areas that they occupy, and so these things are going on, and there's great interest around the world in trying to understand what these attacks are and what they amount to. So the UN puts together a, a team of inspectors, send them into Syria to try to investigate, and they don't get very far. While they're there, this horrific attack takes place in the suburbs of Damascus, and to the south and to the east, this region that's called Ghouta. And these attacks are really not large in the terms of number of, of missiles or, or, or rocket shells. They're you know, up maybe a couple dozen at the most. But this one attack on, on a single morning in August ends up killing, by U.S. estimates, 1,400 people, nearly all of them women and children uh, sleeping in, the, in underground basement shelters because sarin, heavier than gas, heavier than air rather, seeps down into sort of the lower structures of a building. And so you have this massive casualty uh, count right away. And the images of this attack are beamed around the world because everyone in Syria has a, has a cell phone camera and those pictures quickly come out. And so this becomes, this begins this great diplomatic struggle between, you know, the United States, the UN and Russia and all these other players on how to respond to this. And these inspectors who are in Syria to witness it, who happen to be close enough to the, the scene of the crime to go and investigate, they become pawns in this as well, because the U.S. wants them out because they want to launch an airstrike. And you've got this, you know, fact-finding mission on the ground. And, you know, what's the optics of, of pulling them out when, you're, when they're trying to, to find out the facts of what happened? Uh, you've got, uh, you know, even the U.N. wishing to kind of be low-key about this. But as the inspectors end up going to the crime scene on their own, they get shot at, they get held up at gunpoint, all kinds of amazing things happens to them. But they, they manage to get precious evidence, blood, blood and tissue samples, soil samples, pieces of rockets. And while the rest of the world has essentially concluded that this was a nerve gas attack, 
there's no clarity at this point about who was responsible. This team finds compelling evidence that points to the Assad regime that over time eliminates all doubt that this could have been some false flag operation. But this really is the core story, and this is uh, of the book and and um, and and some amazing acts of bravery on the part of those who went to these dangerous places to try to understand the truth. And could you just say something about the autopsy that helped them um, right. identify this? <laughs> It's one of my favorite stories, as, as heartbreaking as it is. But one of those early investigations where they're where they're trying to figure out, you know, who's behind these these scattered attacks throughout Syria, involves a single woman. There's an attack on a town called Sarakeb, which is in the northern part of of, Iraq, of Syria, close to the Turkish border, and it was just a couple of of tear gas canisters filled with sarin. One of them falls in the courtyard of a woman named Maryam Al Khatib, and she becomes the only fatality. She dies because she walks outside to see what had happened and she gets a pretty good dose of sarin. Her family, panicky, uh, decides to take her out of the country to get medical help. So they put her in a car, they take her across to Turkey. She dies in Turkey and that in a way is miraculous for her story because it means they that you know, the Turks have a body and eventually the UN has a body because United Nations investigators come in July of 2013 trying to find physical evidence of, of these chemical attacks and they have a woman that they can autopsy. And they do this autopsy and they not only find the sarin, but they find enough of it that they can do a pretty good forensic profile, which becomes crucial later on when they're trying to prove that, yes, the sarin came from the Syrians' weapons factories and not from some other source or from terrorists. Mm -hmm. So as you said in um, your introduction, um, you also look at ISIS um, and their acquisition or attempts to acquire uh, chemical weapons. Um, so we know that obviously the Syrian government, as you say, had developed sarin. It had chlorine, uh, which it had used uh, as a chemical weapon beforehand. Um, but ISIS, of course, was trying to acquire them. Um, so how difficult did that make it much more difficult to attribute the source of some of these attacks? And how was ISIS able to acquire these weapons? Yeah, well, that there's an interesting backstory to this because the two groups, terrorist groups, Islamist terrorist groups that we're familiar with, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, both have a history of, of interest in, in chemical weapons. Way back when Osama bin Laden was running the organization, he once said that weapons of mass destruction was a religious duty for this terrorist group. And so in Afghanistan, they experimented with various chemical weapons, tried to make things that they could use to, to attack the West. ISIS or its predecessor got the same idea. They began using chlorine as a chemical weapon. So in Syria, there's this opportunity. They could potentially steal some stuff from Assad if they can get their hands on it. And they came very close. They weren't able to do that. And so ISIS decides then, well, next best thing, we're going to try to make our own. They can see how spectacularly successful Assad was at drawing the attention of the world with just a few um, rocket shells full of sarin. And so they embark on a pretty ambitious program to, to manufacture chemical weapons. This has never happened in the history of terrorist movements, except for perhaps Aum Shinrikyo, the Japanese uh, death cult that, that did the same thing in the 90s. But here you have a, a, a terrorist group with a country with laboratories with university facilities and they go to work to try to make chemical weapons they didn't get very far because obviously when we find out we as americans and our partners that this this activity is going on we devote a lot of of activity a lot of effort fairly quietly to try to find the, the locations to try to to identify capture or kill the key individuals. And so we stopped them fairly quickly. They did manage to make, well, they used a lot of chlorine, mostly against Kurdish targets, but they did end up making mustard gas. And mustard is not all that technically challenging. The kind that they made was, was fairly crude in the sense that it tended to, to deteriorate fairly quickly after use it. So it wasn't a very good weapon. And for that reason, when OPCW and other investigators examine the scenes of these attacks, they could quickly say, well, yeah, this is not from Syria's stockpile. This is something that was made by pro professionals, made in a laboratory, but it's not high-grade stuff. And eventually, they're able to, to very conclusively say that, yeah, this was this was ISIS manufacture. The, uh, because the moral of the story is that even though that ISIS did not get as far as it might have liked, mm -hmm. it's clear that its ambition did not go away. Some of its scientists managed to flee the country. We, we, we don't know if they've been killed or captured somewhere. We just assumed that they're still around. And ISIS continues to say occasionally 
that it wants to do this again, that it, it has an aspiration to carry out a chemical weapons attack. And that knowledge, that essential know-how how, about how to do it, that still exists somewhere within the, the muscle memory of this group. And of course, mustard gas was used in World War One, right? This is not a new phenomenon. <laughs> and that's actually an important uh, thing yeah. about chemical weapons. It's the only it's it's the only sort of weapon system that 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 we as a as a world as an international community decided to do something about decided to outlaw. So the very first you know, banning of a weapon was the banning of chemical weapons. It, it yeah. you know, we, we, you know, the people who died in the First World War and the Second World War, you know, died in horrific ways often, but there was something that was just viscerally terrible about the specter of seeing a human being suffocate like a cockroach on, on chemicals. It's something yeah. that just motivated us to try to say, no more, this is never going to happen again. There's an international taboo against it. And I think that's why when this happened in Syria, we, we were alarmed by all the the suffering that we saw but this one you know attack really galvanized the attention of the world yeah very importantly too um let's look at the obama administration's policy now towards syria your book's title is red line president obama used the word red line that that you know if chemical weapons were used the us would intervene militarily um so if you could talk a little bit about the evolution of us policy on Syria under the Obama administration. What happened to the red line? Why there wasn't uh, more of a response after all these chemical um, weapons uh, attacks happened? You know, which groups in the U.S. were supporting intervention, which weren't, and, you know, why it didn't happen in the end? Mm. Yep, there's a lot to unpack there, but that really gets to the meat of some of the, the bigger issues that are raised in the book. Right. Um, I, I guess to, to start with, what has to Put oneself back in time uh, in 2011. This is the you know the, the Obama administration. It's it's heading into its third year when Arab Spring breaks out. And I was uh, you know was covering the Middle East as a diplomatic reporter at the time. And I also happened to have been back in the late 80s a reporter covering you know the fall of communism in Eastern Europe. And so the parallels there were, were amazing. And to all of us who witnessed both events, it was this kind of this sense of of history turning. Um, so that was very exciting in, in a way, you know, this, you know these you know, fledgling democracies on the horizon in the, in, in the Middle East of all places. And, and the, the Obama administration had to quickly scramble what to do about this movement. Uh, how do you respond to it? We, we certainly identify with these protesters in Egypt and other places that are aspiring to, to be free of dictatorship. And so our, our initial response was essentially expressions of support, you know, condemning violence, condemning dictators, saying that Egypt's leader must go, Gaddafi must go, uh, and then Assad, the, the president of, of Syria, must go. The problem was, in Syria in particular, was it is ruled by a, a extremely brutal family that was prepared to sacrifice anything, was prepared to destroy the country in order to stay in power, and it was backed by two extremely powerful leaders in a way that other countries weren't. Uh, Russia, number one, and, mm -hmm. and Iran. Both saw the survival of the regime as vital national interests for them. And they were absolutely committed from the beginning, and even more so as the war continued, to keep their guy in power. And their commitment to making him stay ended up ultimately being much greater than our ambition to get Assad to leave. And that becomes kind of the core international conflict and, and, and trying to res resolve serious fate. The Obama administration, um, it, 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 I think you would talk to, to most folks speaking honestly and frankly about this, and, and they would acknowledge that um, we gave the Syrians more hope uh, in some of our messaging than we were prepared to back up. By saying Assad must go, the, the implicit meaning is that Assad must go and we're going to make him go. When the reality is, the United States was not about to get involved uh, in, in a military conflict in Syria if it could all at all help it, and its reluctance to become involved gets even greater when we see how much the Russians are willing to be uh, involved militarily with boots on the ground. And so that was not going to happen. But because of statements like Assad must go, because of red line warnings, uh, which kind of grew out of intelligence that we had in 2012 that that these, these chemical weapons that were so problematic and so worrisome 
were about to be handed over to Hezbollah, a terrorist group that came in from intelligence in 2012. And so we're, we're putting out messages all over the world to the Syrians, don't do this. We send emissaries off to Russia, to, to Iran, talk to the Syrians, make public statements saying, if you do this, there's going to be big trouble. In one case, Obama actually uses the phrase red line, which is, you know, was had all kinds of implicit meaning. But but again, it's an instance where we, uh, you know, appeared to promise help that we weren't truly prepared to deliver. We did provide a lot of help. It ended up coming later on in the form of, of clandestine help, covert aid. Mm-hmm. We had a billion dollar train and equip a program that that trained you know, tens of thousands of Syrian fighters that delivered weapons to them, as well as equipment and uniforms, but lethal aid. And, and because the, the, the Syrian opposition was so fragmented, uh, you know, has, has a sort of a unified you know, front office, but you know, the reality on the ground is there are hundreds of these small groups that don't necessarily work well together. Some of them are people that we don't want to associate with because of their allegiances to various uh, Islamist groups. And so, any effort, any aid that we gave, uh, any training that we provided, much of that ended up going to people that we didn't want to help. And so eventually that program was disbanded. The more we tried to help, the worse the situation seemed to become. It was almost like throwing fuel on a fire. And I think uh, to a person, the folks who, who worked the issue in the Obama administration look back and say, this just was this was just a train wreck. This was something that we we you know had good intentions, but we despite our efforts, we were not able to to do anything about. Critics would say they didn't do nearly enough. They didn't intervene early enough. There's more that we could have done diplomatically. But you know, Hillary Clinton called Syria the problem from hell, and I think she's absolutely right about that. And as much as we tried or or thought we had good solutions, everything we attempted seemed to blow up in our faces. Yeah, and as you say, the Russians wanted Assad to stay in power more than the U.S. wanted Assad to go. So could you say a little bit more about what the stakes were and still are um, in this situation in Syria? Uh, And also maybe uh, going back to what happened under Obama, uh, the issue of Congress's role in this. Mm. Well, I'll start with the Congress part first, because because this becomes... Um, the out for for Obama whenever he's contemplating whether or not to use military force in Syria, uh, and it is as readers will see if if they they read the book, it, it's quite complicated because Obama is horrified initially by this chemical weapons attack. He's threatened this. He's given this red line warning, and he intends to back it up. He has a, a military operation planned. The ships are in the Mediterranean. The missiles are in the tubes, ready to go. But there are a number of factors that get in the way, and one one is you know this whole problem of WMD in the Middle East, it's, it's, uh, we have a bad history of, of misinterpreting WMD and, and, and starting wars. So we wanted to make sure the intelligence was right. That took some time. You have the inspectors on the ground to deal with. So that, that was a delaying thing. Other countries started to back away from the idea of a strike, such as the British, who were going to join us initially, then they changed their mind. And so, so Obama decided that his only real recourse was to go to Congress. If we're going to do this, we should do it as a united country. So let's get Congress to support us. And and within the cabinet, people I've spoken to felt very strongly that Congress would, would back the president, that the Democrats would certainly get behind their leader, the Republicans would support a military strike if it was limited. And it turned out that nobody, nobody supported this idea. And so Obama sat, was sitting here kind of having promised a military strike, having promised he was gonna get support of Congress to do it, and that that support wasn't there. And so until this deal came together, in which the Russians out of nowhere decided, well, we'll get Assad to disarm and this will be the way forward and a kind of a face-saving way out, he, he really looked stuck. Um, but to, to, to kind of fast forward to where we are now and, and just the importance, um, uh, yeah, you know, what I see as important about, about this conflict going forward is that it has become ever more clear that the United States needs to remain in, in, engaged I think the, the Biden administration realizes this. They've got other things they're focusing on, but without a at least a, a an assertive diplomatic presence in the region, and uh, without some uh, re, you know military component of that uh, of our response, it becomes very easy for other countries to completely dominate the solution in, in Syria, whatever that is, and and it could be quite unfavorable to the United States and our allies if, for example, Iran is allowed to. To, to essentially create a land bridge from Iran to Lebanon that goes through Iraq and Syria, and that is 
uh, kind of populated along the way with pro-Iranian militia groups. That's what they've been trying to, to produce. And it's really will take a, an active presence by the United States to make sure that doesn't come to, to fruition. Yeah. So let's now turn to the Russian-American angle of this now. Um, the so-called Russian cooperation in dismantling the chemical uh, weapons programs. Um, the Russia was supposed to work with the U.S. in terms of identifying the weapons and then destroying them. Uh, but, you know, as you tell it, apart from signing a piece of paper with the United States saying Russia and the U.S. were going to cooperate, and Putin, as you say, had this rather extraordinary um, op-edit piece in the New York Times uh, in September of, <laughs> of that year saying, you know, we should do this. Apart from signing that piece of paper and apparently Foreign Minister Lavrov telling Secretary of State Kerry that they basically told that the Syrians that they had to go along with this, uh, even if they didn't want to. It seems that not only did Russia not do anything to help uh, either identify or dismantle them, but in some cases it obstructed it. So mm -hmm. tell us more about you know, what the Russians did and why you think they didn't do more. Were they interested in having the Syrians really get rid of their chemical weapons mm -hmm. stock? Yeah, there was this really interesting moment when countries of the world, including the United States and Russia, came together over the, the Syrian chemical weapons problem. The motivations for doing this were quite different, but there was a common cause in trying to disarm Syria of its declared stockpile. From the Russians' point of view, here's an opportunity for Putin to appear statesmanlike. He could help uh, resolve a, you know, a difficult problem. He could come in and say to the West, here, I'll, I'll fix this for you. And they certainly had the ability to do it because they had Assad, you know, in 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 their in a steely grip. And there is, I think you alluded to this. There's this moment when Kerry uh, and Lavrov, the two, the foreign minister, secretary of state, are having an argument at one point in the book. And Kerry's, you know, berating Lavrov for not kind of forcing to the Syrians to cooperate on some matter. Mm -hmm. And he says to him in exasperation, you know. When you wanted Syria to get rid of its chemical weapons, you got them to turn around in 24 hours. And Lavrov looks back at Kerry and just says, less. So that shows you the, the great power and influence that the, that the Russians had over their, their ally, which was completely dependent on them, uh, for the Russians for its survival. And so Russia had this card to play. It played it very well. It was perhaps, I think, arguably in Russia's interest to see Syria eliminate a stockpile that was becoming an embarrassment because every time there was an international report of chemical weapons being used, you know, Assad was being bashed for that and Russia by implication was helping Assad. So better to get rid of those weapons. So that was a, a good thing to do from the Russia's point of view. But in terms of helping us do it, they did remarkably little. We had these meetings in 2013 after the initial deal was broken where we were trying to get the Russians to, to contribute you know, various things that they could have done. They could have taken the weapons themselves and Take, brought them across the Black Sea and destroyed them in their own facilities. They have dedicated factories for getting rid of chemical weapons that they had built during the Cold War. So there's things they could have done. Even had this sort of dated but but real brigade of vehicles that were designed to, to destroy chemical weapons. Why not use those? But in the end, the Russians refused to, to really offer tangible help. Uh, they contributed a battleship to this, uh, to like a maritime operation that was just essentially providing protection off the coast. But everything else had to come either from the United States or the UN or, or our allies. And after the initial um, removal, after the, the 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 bulk of the stockpile is taken out of the country, Russia goes from you know just being a bit passive in its support of the operation to being completely. Um, you know, in Assad's camp in terms of backing up whenever new allegations would come out about chemical weapons use, defending their ally, defending him in the UN, blocking any kind of punitive measures from, from ever getting to a vote, and not just at the United Nations, but the OPCW. And so from that point on, um, Putin becomes more and more of an obstructionist, uh, protecting his client at all costs, you know, you know, creating or going along with storylines that would suggest that rebels are responsible for all the violence and, and the use of chemical weapons, and and just never allowing Assad to see even a moment of accountability. And that's been their role, role really since 2014. Right. And as you show, uh, as far as you could identify, they never really put any pressure on him, except initially saying that he had to allow you know, these, these people to, to identify and take away the weapons. So now um, you have some fascinating details in the book about how the weapons were identified. 
how they were transported to the place, to Latakia, uh, to where they were going to be um, then transported to somewhere where they could be destroyed. Um, the Russians said that they couldn't destroy them because of various laws they had, which normally isn't a problem for Russia. So it fell in the, uh, in the end uh, to the United States and, and the special crew to do that. So you have gripping detail about that. So if you could describe more, you know, how they got the weapons, um, uh, how they got them to the port from which they were supposed to go on and be destroyed, how that nearly didn't happen, uh, really at the very, very last moment. Yeah, well, this is really probably my favorite part of the this, this story. And it's very little known, I must say, that, that people just do not appreciate the difficulty of, of this, this challenge. It really ranks as one of the most remarkable feats of arms control in history, because it happened in nine months, and an entire program, weapons program, was completely or mostly dismantled with a bit of cheating, as we find out later. And it happened during a war, it, not just a you know a, a, a cold war. It was a hot war, and people were, were literally firing artillery rounds over the vehicles that are passing, you know, carrying these truck these these weapons down the road. But there, you know, if you can think back to the moment in 2013 when the deal comes together, everybody's excited. Syria is going to give up its weapons programs. You ask the question, how do we do that? Who who does that? There's no organization anywhere in the world whose job it is to go into a country and, and remove a weapons program in the middle of war. We have something called the OPCW, Organization for Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, based in The Hague. They've got a, a force of inspectors who go around and do like verification missions. They're not armed. They don't have you know the logistical ability to, to, to kind of take off and go set up camp in another country. So in a very short period of time, really a few weeks, this program was cobbled together with UN people and OPCW people and money from the US and from allies, from you know, equipment, all coming together in a very few weeks. And, and just three weeks after the, the deal was signed, the first inspectors start to arrive in Syria to do the job. And one of them told me later that, and it was great they got there so quickly, but it was like, you know, we're going to operate on a patient. We don't really have a hospital yet. We don't have an operating room. We don't have the tools. They didn't have anything. And so they had to start from scratch and then rely on Syrian cooperation to allow them to go to one facility after another, first to do inventory and then to start smashing things up and hauling things out. So every piece of equipment that they could identify that the Syrians were using to make chemical weapons had to be literally trashed. Some of it was broken up with hammers or, or you know, welding torches or whatever they had to, to smash it to the extent that they could never use it again. And that's actually part of the the, uh, the benefit of this operation, not just that they took a bunch of bad chemicals out, but they destroyed Assad's production equipment. He had some laboratories left over when it was all over, but these sort of factory-like uh, facilities where they made chemical weapons, they were dismantled piece by piece and destroyed so they could never be used again. In some cases, even the bunkers that they were in were blown up afterward. So that was the job they did. It took place in an incredibly compressed amount of time nine months from the beginning to end. But once you get the weapons, the physical weapons out of the country, this is tons and tons and tons of mostly liquid uh, stuff, mostly precursors, um, there's no place for it to go. There was no country that's, that's saying, sure, br bring all those toxic chemicals to our port, we'll take care of it. Nobody was saying that. United States, the European allies, nobody wanted this stuff. And so the solution comes down to uh, this one small organization that works is part of the army down in Edgewood, Maryland. They have like a special team. I call them like the Ray Donovans of the chemical weapons world. When they find chemical weapons that are left over or abandoned any place in the world, these are the guys that can go and figure out how to get rid of it. And so they were tasked with building a machine that could take these chemical weapons and destroy them. And the, the, the initial plan was we'll, we'll build this machine and we'll We'll put it, uh, you know, off the coast of, of Syria or we'll put it in Albania was an idea that, that, that was floated for a while. We'll find a place to stick this machine and then we'll gradually, you know, take these weapons and, and get rid of them. No country would do that. And so they ended up with plan Z, which was let's put the machines on a ship and take it out in the middle of the sea and do it in the middle of the Mediterranean. And there are all kinds of reasons why that's not plan A, because chemical weapons on board a ship that's moving around and, and sloshing and, and, you know, there's the possibility of rogue waves and, you know, capsizing all these dangers. It's not really ideal. 
But because there's nowhere else to put them, that was what they were left with. So you get this crew from Maryland. They put their their their, their machines on this ship. They go out to sea. They pick up the material. And then for 42 days, they're spinning circles around the Mediterranean um, using this machine to try to destroy the, the weapons. And there are problems that come. The equipment breaks down. Things start, start to, to wear out much more, more, more quickly than they thought it would. There's a stability problem because on a ship that's a essentially a big cargo ship, you've got fuel in the bottom that keeps the ship stable. It's sort of the ballast. And you've got all these liquids up top. And as, as time passes, more fuel is being burned off. More you know, heavy liquids are going to the upper floors. And the ship becomes unstable. And they have a program where they can chart the, the stability of the ship. And they're getting to the point where it's almost uh, you know, a peril because it could potentially collapse if a wave comes along. And so you've got that going on. You've got activists from environmental groups who are coming out in ships to try to find them. You know, all this drama facing this this small crew of, of, of Marylanders trying to destroy this weapon, but somehow they managed to get it done. 42 days, they 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 eliminate the last of the barrels of these weapons and, and then they're done. And and this you know, sort of the the ultimate sort of statement at the end or the little farewell message is 42 days to destroy the stockpile. An unknown number is the number of Syrians who might have been killed if this hadn't been done. Because we have to remember this was, these weapons were a threat to Syrians more than they were to the rest of us because, yeah. you know, a, a sarin artillery shell can kill a lot of people. Uh, one, the, the deadliest attack in the entire history of the war was the attack on, on, on August 21st when a few artillery shells filled with sarin landed in a, in a single neighborhood and killed 1,400 people. So the lethal power of these weapons can't be underestimated. It's really is an amazing story. <laughs> um, you know, fiction couldn't be any better than that. You can't um, make it up. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't make it up. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Trump administration? Because in fact, one of the things that President Trump did was to react to a chemical weapons attack. And of course, this is after the Syrians were supposed to have gotten rid of all of them, and they clearly didn't. Right. So, so yeah, so Assad cheated. And he cheated during Obama's time, uh, after the, the weapons were taken out, even before they were all destroyed, he goes back to his old ways. He doesn't use sarin anymore, because that's supposedly gone. But he starts using a, a poor man's chemical weapon, which is just ordinary chlorine, chlorine that we put in our swimming pools, we clean drinking water with. Every country has it. It's not illegal. And so it just starts dropping you know, barrels full of chlorine on, on, on towns and, and apartment buildings. Chlorine is not going to kill a lot of people. It, it's a chemical weapon in the sense that it, it terrorizes. It can make you sick. It can kill you if, you if you get a lot of it in your system. And so that becomes the, the substitution for chemical warfare. So that goes on in this steady drumbeat of these, you know, low grade, you know, low casualty attacks that are, um, you know, kind of a finger in the eye of, of the West. Um, that, so then Obama leaves, Trump comes into office, and Assad, for whatever reason, feels bold enough to use sarin again. So he uses sarin in an attack in, in April of 2017. And again, we have these images of, of children and, 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 and uh, civilians suffering and dying. And Trump says, well, I'm gonna enforce the red line. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what Obama never did. I'm gonna, I'm gonna launch some missiles. And he got a lot of praise for that. And he got credit for being tough and standing up to the Syrians and, uh, and punishing them. Um, and, and actually this happened twice. There are two instances, 2017, 2018, when Trump used uh, missiles to respond to a chemical weapons violation. If you look at what was achieved, it gets a little bit more complicated because the, you know, the, the missile strike that Obama was envisioning in 2013 was very much like the one that, that Trump launched in 2017. It called for a, not a decapitation, not a regime change kind of strike, not setting up a, a no-fly zone, but essentially just a punitive strike where you hit a few airports, you destroy some airplanes, a few command and control centers, and then you're done. It's very limited. And... Um, the result of the one that Trump actually carried out in 2017 was, uh, you know, an airport was disabled for a few hours, a few airplanes were destroyed, but but Assad had his planes back in the air that same day. He carried out additional chemical attacks within a few weeks after that. So it was a, if it was a deterrent, it was a very short one it, because he was back to his old ways in almost no time. If you think about what Obama did, despite the flaws and the the incompleteness of the mission. If you want to punish you know, the Syrian dictator, there's no bigger punishment than depriving him of his biggest strategic arsenal. 
And so no matter what he kept behind, his strategic stockpile, the stuff he could have used as a deterrent against Israel, doesn't exist anymore. It's almost as if somebody came to the United States and said, well, you know, you, you did something bad. We're going to take away your, your nuclear arsenal, the biggest, you know, the, the, our main deterrent. And Assad had agreed to do that. And, uh, and so, you know, 1,300 tons of chemical weapons probably was about 90 to 95% of what he had. And to have to give that up meant, you know, a huge loss for him, but it also meant he couldn't use it. Uh, you know, they couldn't be, it was much harder for it to be stolen by others, terrorist groups and others who would want to get it. So there was a national interest served by that deal, even though it was, it didn't come out, you know, politically to Obama's advantage, certainly, even though it made Obama look weak in some ways. In the long run, he managed to accomplish something that was pretty significant. Yeah. So, um, of course, what you also show, um, and we've talked about this too, is in some ways the, the sort of taboo on chemical weapons has, has ended. We know that the Syrians still have them. We've seen Russia use nerve agent uh, to try and kill uh, opposition leader, a former um, uh, GRU agent in London. We've seen Kim Jong-un um, kill his half-brother. Uh, using some kind of a nerve agent. So it's still around. And I guess the Russian laboratories that used to manufacture these um, uh, chemical weapons, somehow some of these facilities still exist, even though um, you know, they were supposed to have all been dismantled. Um, what, what can we do about this? Or what do you think that means kind of going forward in terms of the future of chemical weapons? Mm. This is really interesting. The, the the erosion of that taboo against chemical weapons is is really an important part of this. The last time that chemical weapons were used in a major way was was back in the the Iran Iraq War when Saddam Hussein did it, and this was the most the, the biggest violation that had taken place since then. And because Assad got away with it in the sense that he was not ever forced to admit to anything. He was never personally held accountable for anything. He had Russia kind of taking his side and, and having his back and supporting him, protecting him in the United Nations. He didn't really have to, to, uh, to, to bear any kind of burden or, or, or pay a price. And that erosion of this norm, this, this prohibition, prohibition against chemical weapons has been noticed by others. We certainly see ISIS decide to take up on, on the idea. And you see other countries such as Russia and North Korea feeling emboldened to do it as well. And you have the, the, the two incidents you mentioned with the Russians, with uh, the Skripal family in 2018, uh, and then this the Navalny attempt over the summer. Mm -hmm. And then North Korea, you know, the Kim Jong-un decides to, to carry out an attack in another country, in Singapore, against a member of his own family using, you know, a chemical weapon that was, you know, spread on his face as he's walking through an airport. So you do worry that as, as countries see this as something they can get away with, something that people might complain and and uh, and and, and uh, yell about, but not really force them to, to, to face very serious consequences other than sanctions, then then this behavior becomes encouraged. You can imagine other actors wanting to do the same. And you're right, right about the Russians. They they developed what is probably the, the biggest uh, chemical weapons stockpile that was ever created during the World, World War II, which had not just sarin and VX, but this new thing, Novichok, which they began to develop in the 1980s. And after the Cold War ended, those programs, as we know now, didn't really go away. They didn't dismantle some of those military labs. They continued to do their research. They continued to maintain their stockpile so that when they have a need for something like a Novichok for uh, you know, an attack against a political opponent, they could use it. They could just use, as easily use it in a military setting or in an, or to destabilize, you know, a country or any number of ways. And if you have to imagine that if there's no, uh, no reluctance to do that kind of research, you know, what else is being investigated, chemical or biological weapons, perhaps. So this is an issue, I think, again, for the, for the Biden administration, that as we demand accountability, from the Russians for the, the Navalny attack and these other incidences, we need to, to demand transparency about the research they're doing, um, including you know getting inspections and access and uh, OPCW's inspectors or whatever is needed to make sure that they are coming clean about what, they, what they're doing and what their intentions are. Yeah, so let me just ask you another question about the OPCW. Um, as you show in your book, they do all this work, but they're not allowed to actually attribute 
any attack to a particular country or individual, which of course hamstrings them. And then of course we know at the United Nations, um, the Russians always have vetoed any kind of um, resolution in the Security Council uh, that would uh, lay the blame, for instance, on the Syrian government for what it did, and the Chinese usually back the Russians up. So in the absence of being able to do this, we don't have that many tools really where we can hold countries responsible for what they do. Yeah, Am I wrong? This is, the, this is the great difficulty in the, in the diplomatic sphere. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the UN and the OPCW are, are set up as consensus organizations. And they can do great things if there's a consensus. But in this very polarized world, it's it's often to the advantage of, of some of our, our adversaries mm -hmm. to, to get in the way of our plans, even if they don't necessarily object to them. They're just essentially being contrarian. And in the case of, of Syria, you see again and again that the, the, the organizations like the OPCW are so constricted about what they can say. They can go into Syria and they can say, yes, chemical weapons were used. Yes, we know they were sarin. We we have details about the, the forensic uh, makeup of the sarin. We know where it came from, the artillery shells that were used to fire it. But we can't explicitly say that we think this was Syria that did it. Now, that's changing. Um, there's been so much, um, I guess, frustration over what happened over the last decade that, that the OPCW now has something called the IIT. It's, it's a separate investigative body that is in the process now of doing attribution. That's what it does. So it's gone back and looked at some of these old instances and it's using its scientific method to try to deduce responsibility, who actually did this. And they've come back just in the last few months to say that several attacks they've that they've identified were clearly associated with Syria. They were Syrian aircraft that dropped ordnance. These ordnance uh, were from the, from the stockpile, known stockpile of the Syrian government. The um, chemicals inside are forensically traced to, to uh, the, the, the weapons that we know that Syria made. And so they're naming names now in a way that hasn't been done before. And so that, that gives you hope that, you know, as frustrating as this has been, as elusive as justice has been, that there's still a process and there's still a hope that someday it might be well into the future, there will be accountability. And that evidence exists. It's been collected. The, the evidence continues to be gathered. And we have to hope that there'll someday be, be a hearing. And in the meantime, you know, sometimes it just really does fall to coalitions of the willing to get things done. The French in particular have taken a lead in trying to, 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 to uh, you know, establish rules of accountability for, for when chemical weapons are used. The Germans have been very active in, in pursuing the, the Navalny case and, and releasing evidence and, and, you know, really angering the Russians in many cases to, to make these things public. So sometimes countries have to act as coalitions or even unilaterally to call out uh, people when they do things that are wrong. But, um, but hopefully, you know, eventually there will be some justice for this. Right. Well, um, I think we, uh, alas, we're out of time and um, we will end on a, on what's maybe a hopeful note that people have come to realize that there has to be more accountability for this. Um, again, this is Red Line by Joby Warwick. Uh, you should all go out and read it, order it. It's a, it's a really good read apart from anything else. Uh, and I would like to thank you, Joby Warwick, for this conversation and um, good luck as you go on your book tour. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I completely enjoyed this and I hope we can do it again. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Send us an email to podcasts at c-span.org.